Well, good morning, church. Man, it's good to look out and see so many familiar faces, so many new faces. Uh, what a wonderful Sunday to be together. Now, if you're in the room or you're watching online, you might be like, what's up with the backpack, right? Like, he doesn't normally have a backpack. And if it looks heavy, it's because it is heavy, right? Now, the backpack represents some things that we might collect through our lives. And uh, sometimes we're not even really aware that we've picked these up especially if they come early in life, that we just think that's normal. And so it's heavy because it's filled with rocks, all right? Now, the rocks represent things like maybe broken relationships or harsh words that were spoken over us. Maybe there was a divorce or more than one divorce. Maybe there was abuse. Maybe it was physical. Maybe it was emotional. Maybe it was verbal. Maybe it was sexual. Maybe there was infidelity in our past that we were a part of or that impacted us and our families deeply. Maybe it was workaholism, mental health struggles, neglect, or abandonment. But we all pick up these rocks as we go through life, and they can kind of start to get in the way of what it is that we're called to do. It's going to be really hard for me to preach this message with these rocks sitting up here on my notes, isn't it? And yet, anytime we take them out, we only have two options. We can either put them back and keep carrying them, and sometimes we're not even aware that we're carrying them. We've been carrying them for so long that we're just used to it. And yet, even putting these back, it's going to be pretty tough to get through this message. And so today we're going to talk about, you know, Jesus invites us to do something else with these rocks. He invites us to bring them to the altar, to leave them right there with him. In fact, you can see some extra rocks on the altar from our first service. In much the same way <laughs> that if I were to bang my head against the wall for an hour, it would sure feel good when I stopped. When we let these rocks go, we can find that we are so much lighter, so much freer, so much more able to move through life in the way that God called us to. I feel like I could outjump Michael Jordan right now with this backpack as light as it is. We're in week three of our Emotionally Healthy Spirituality series, and I'm not going to do a big review or recap of weeks one and two, but this, this is your first time with us, or if you missed one of those messages, I would strongly encourage you to go back and watch them, because today we're going to talk about going back in order to go forward. You see what I just did there? It turns out pastoral humor is not actually an oxymoron. Pete Scazzaro makes the point that we all have a certain amount of emotional baggage. For some of us, this load was minimal. For others, it turned out to be a heavy one to carry. In fact, some of us are so accustomed to walking with such excess weight that we can't imagine living any other way. Now, there's a continuum here. Some people have a relatively small bag with fewer, smaller rocks. Other people have a very large bag filled with many heavy 
rocks. And so there is a continuum. And there's also a tension that I think we'll find as we engage this, and you might be feeling it already. First, it's difficult to go back and deal with those hurts and those pains from the past and the things that happened to us, the things that were not as they should have been. But there's also not just the, the, the difficulty of doing that and the pain that it accompanies it. There might be this tension that we don't really want to dishonor our parents. Like they did the best that they could. Maybe they've passed away and it feels like we'll be dishonoring them and their contribution in our lives if we go back and work through some things. And maybe it wasn't our parents. Maybe it was bullies at school or maybe it was something outside of that family circle. And so we don't want to dishonor others, and we don't want to seem ungrateful, but I don't think we need to dishonor anyone in order to go back and find healing and allow God's grace to touch those things and to leave them at the foot of the cross. Like the opening illustration, these things can either weigh us down or we can be freed up to move through life without them. Scazzaro says that uh, looking to the past illuminates the present, But make no mistake about it, it is painful. It certainly can be. We can use the past to illuminate the present. We can use the past, look at the past, seek to understand the past as a way of gaining a godly perspective about our past and about the things that maybe we went through, the things that happened to us, the challenges that we faced. And this underscores the power of perspective, the ability to learn to see as God sees to learn to see the things that happen to us through God's eyes, to see his presence with us. And so our bottom line today, I know I've saved it right till the end these last first couple of weeks in this series. Today, the bottom line, I'm going to give it to you early, and we'll talk about it a couple of times. Because I believe the bottom line in today's message is that a godly perspective transforms pain in the past into power for the present and hope for the future. A godly perspective, when we can learn to see those things through God's eyes, it can transform that pain from the past into power for the present and hope for the future. How many of you would like a little more power in the present and a little more hope for the future? I see hands going up all over the place. And so at the outset here, a couple of things you might reflect on or a couple of questions that you might think about as you move through this week in response to this message, how did your family of origin define success? How did your family of origin handle conflict? How did they deal with anger? How did they view different cultures? How did they engage emotions? It was likely a mixed bag. For most of us, it wasn't all negative or all positive, right? We had our strengths and our weaknesses. Some of you, maybe it was more negative than positive. Others, Maybe you would say, you know, I think we were raised in a very strong, God-honoring, biblically-rooted family, and we got a lot of these things right. But the real question is, how do the ways that your family of origin did things compare to the way of Jesus? How do they compare to the family of God and how things are revealed in Scripture as God's ideal for us? Because my favorite quote from chapter 3 of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality is found on page 83 and 84, where Scazzaro says, God's intention is that our local churches are to be places where slowly but surely we are reparented in doing life Christ's way. God intends that his new community of people 
will be the place where we are set free. This idea of reparenting, this idea of, of a place to work through these things in a local church really comes home to me as the pastor of Linwood, where our mission is to reach people for Christ, to give them a place to belong and to help them grow in their faith. And our vision is to be and increasingly become a healthy family of families. Now, when I got to Linwood and we were going through the process of prayerfully discerning that as a board and as a leadership team, this language of a family of families was pretty well established at Linwood, and it resonated with me very, very deeply. But in those conversations, I remember saying, we've got to add at least one word. We've got to add the word healthy because family doesn't mean the same thing to everyone. And there are some people whose family of origin was so dysfunctional that the idea of a church that's anything like that, they don't want anything to do with it. And rightly so. But if we are going to strive to be and increasingly become a healthy family of families, then that means that we would be a biblically functioning family. And one of the first sermon series that I preached here in that first summer of 2018 that I was here at Linwood, we did a series titled A Family of Families, and we talked about what it means to be a healthy family of families, to be a missional family of families, to be a worshipful family of families, a prayerful family of families. And we identified what type of family we wanted to be in the last five years have been the pursuit of that. And so with all of that as a backdrop, let's look at the story from the Old Testament of Joseph found in the last fourth of the book of Genesis. In fact, almost a fourth of that whole book is focused on Joseph and his life and the events of his life. And as we do, we'll see four lessons that we can learn from Joseph's life. So if you would, turn with me to Genesis chapter 37. If you need a Bible, there's Bibles in the seats, underneath the seats uh, on the little wire shelf there. You can grab a Bible and turn to page 60. It's an easy one to find today. And uh, in Genesis 37, this is where we're introduced to Joseph. And just a couple of verses tell us a lot about Joseph, especially when we see them in the context of that Old Testament narrative of the people of God that begins around Genesis 12 and 13 with Abraham and moves through Isaac and then to Jacob. Jacob, by this point, has been renamed Israel. So Jacob and Israel are synonymous. They're dealing with the same person. And as we read verse 3 and 4, we hear that Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other brothers, or his other sons, sorry because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. Now, there's a lot of he's and him's there, but just to make sure we're all on the same page, Jacob had 12 sons. Joseph was his 11th son, and he was his favorite son. And Scripture tells us because he was born to, to Jacob in his old age, but we also know from the preceding narrative that he was also born to Jacob from Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. Now, he had four wives. Uh, and this is always a problem. Anytime it comes up in Scripture, it's a, it's a total disaster, okay? So there's nothing in Scripture that endorses this. Sometimes people ask me that question. I'm like, look at every single example of it. It's a mess. And it was a mess here. And Jacob, because Joseph was his favorite, made a richly ornamented robe for him, setting him completely apart among his brothers. In verse 4, it continues, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. That last phrase really fleshes things out, doesn't it? 
Have you ever hated somebody so much you could not speak a kind word to them? Or has anybody ever hated you that much? No pleasantries, no good morning, no chit-chat around the dinner table. Not a single kind word could be spoken. Their hatred was so deep. And it's this big, dysfunctional family. Eleven, Joseph is eleven out of twelve sons. There were sisters. We know there were at least a few sisters. There were multiple wives. There was this hierarchy and this pecking order. There were the favored wives and the favored sons of those wives. There was the birth order thing that was going on. There were birth order things between the brothers of the different wives. There was so much dysfunction, so many broken relationships. And it's not as if Jacob didn't come by this honestly. If you look at the lives of Abraham and of Isaac, his father and grandfathers, you see this generational pattern of lying and favoritism, of brothers being cut off from each other, of dysfunctional marriages in these families. And I think there's a moment of pause there to say, if that's part of your past, you're in pretty good company. Like, these are the patriarchs. These are the people of God. These are those that God called to himself and set apart for his purposes, and he worked powerfully in and through their lives despite the dysfunction of their families. Clearly, they were not picked because they had it all together. Clearly, they were not picked because they had it all figured out. On the contrary, God worked in them and God worked through them powerfully. So if you struggle with any of those things, it's not something to pretend away or to be ashamed of, but it's something to recognize and understand that God might be able to work in and through that as well. And so to summarize from this point forward in Genesis 37, to summarize Joseph's life, he begins to have dreams when he's still a young boy. And in these dreams, he shares them with his family, and it turns out that in these dreams, he's elevated, not just above his brothers, but even above his mother and father, which is a pretty big deal in a family-centric culture like this. And as you might imagine, these dreams did nothing to uh, diminish his brother's hatred of him. Quite the contrary, it increased it exponentially to the point that when they saw their opportunity, they faked his death, sold him into slavery in Egypt, and went home and told their dad, your favored son has been killed by a wild animal. And they allowed their dad to live with that sorrow and that grief for decades. Imagine the depth of the dysfunction that is present in this family. But to turn our attention to Joseph, as he arrives in Egypt, he is purchased as a slave in the house of a wealthy uh, aristocrat, a member of Pharaoh's court named Potiphar. And Joseph immediately begins to distinguish himself in Potiphar's house, and he outperforms. He has gifts. He has abilities. He's good with with management of the household. He's got integrity. All of these things are working in his favor, and he makes something of himself and moves up to that place of second-in-command in Potiphar's house. And it's here through no fault of his own, even though he's trying to do the right thing and act with integrity, he gets accused of impropriety with Potiphar's wife and finds himself in prison. Back to square one. He went from favored son to slave. He worked himself up to chief slave, basically, and now he's the bottom of a prison. And yet he works his way up in the prison as well, using the gifts and abilities that he has. He continues to be faithful. He chooses to become better, not bitter. And it's in the prison that this dream 
sensitivity from his past re-emerges. Two new prisoners come in. They have dreams. Joseph rightly interprets the dreams. Exactly what he says will happen happens. And he thinks this is his ticket out of prison. But he gets forgotten about for several more years as he waits and he waits and he waits. And then his moment comes. Pharaoh has a dream. And this cupbearer who Joseph had interpreted his dream now remembers, oh, there was a guy in a prison. He can interpret dreams. I'll bet he can help. And Joseph has his moment. And he rightly interprets Pharaoh's dream. And Pharaoh puts him back on top. He explains that these dreams mean there's going to be seven fat years, seven years of abundance, years of plenty. The land has never produced like this, but put some aside. Make sure you save some because it's going to be followed by seven very lean years. And Joseph's put in charge of that program, of the saving and the putting aside, so that when the famine comes and when the famine spreads throughout the known world at that point, Egypt has food and nobody else does. The famine even reaches to Canaan where Joseph's brother and brothers and his father are, and they come to him, and that's where there's this reunion, so to speak. And we see in Joseph uh, such a powerful and beautiful picture of Jesus choosing not to punish his brothers for their misdeeds, but to reconcile to them, to forgive them, to make provision for them. And that's why we can learn four lessons from Joseph's life as we consider this idea of going back in order to go forward. These are taken from pages 93 through 95, uh, but we're going to look at the scriptures underneath them as we go through this. First, the first lesson we can learn from Joseph's life is that Joseph had a profound sense of the bigness of God, a profound sense of the bigness of God, the sovereignty of God, the, the direction of God in the world. In Genesis 45, when this encounter with his brothers takes place, in verses 7 and 8, Joseph is speaking to them, and he says, But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all Egypt." And this is so profound because Joseph is not only not mad at his brothers and seeking to use his position to get even with them, not only is he not doing that, he's not mad at God. He had every right to be mad at God. But he sees this in the big scheme of things. He gains a godly perspective. And our bottom line is that a godly perspective transforms pain from the past into power for the present and hope for the future. Because he had a godly perspective, because he, he had this profound sense of the bigness of God, he had the power to forgive his brothers and to not go through life carrying the heavy burden of unforgiveness it's almost as if he believed thousands or hundreds of years before it was written. He believed, Romans 8, 28, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. He had a sense of the bigness of God. He felt he was called according to a purpose from God, and he had a rock-solid belief that God was somehow, some way, going to work all things together for the good in his life. And that's such a powerful verse of Scripture, but it's not just a Bible verse. It's not just something that you put on your wall or something that you write in a journal. This is a promise from God. This is a rock-solid promise from God. 
One that we either believe in difficult circumstances or we find that we do not. That He is working those things together, however bad they may seem to be. He's working them together for good. If we love Him and are called according to His purpose, if we maintain a sense of the bigness of God, we maintain an eternal perspective. The eternal perspective can allow us to see how even though this may not be fully redeemable in this life, it is fully redeemable in eternity. And that if those things as bad as they were brought us to Jesus and we spend eternity with Him in the presence of God instead of apart from Him, where there we weeping and gnashing of teeth, then it was worth it and God worked it together for good. So first, we see that Joseph had a profound sense of the bigness of God. Second, we see that Joseph admitted the sadness and losses of his family. He felt the pain. He didn't bottle it up. He didn't stuff it away. In the first couple of verses there of Genesis 45, we're told that Joseph, when he could no longer control himself before all his attendants, he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Far from trying to bottle it up or stuff it away, he let it out. He let the floodgates out. He felt the pain, and he grieved the losses. He didn't try to sidestep it. He didn't try to take this bigness of God and turn that into, I'm just going to roll up my sleeves and Pollyanna my way through the rest of my life and pretend it didn't happen or it didn't hurt if it did. He feels the pain. He feels the losses. He grieves those losses. In fact, we're told earlier before this that he even named his two sons as reminders of his journey and God's faithfulness to him through his journey. His first son, Manasseh, that was born to him, he named Manasseh from the Hebrew word forget. And he explains, because God has enabled me to forget my troubles. So he's worked with this. He's processed this. His second son is named Ephraim. Ephraim is from the Hebrew word fruitful. And he says, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. He's got this godly perspective, but he's not pretending it didn't hurt. He's not pretending there weren't difficulties. I wonder, have you ever heard the phrase, grow through what you go through? Anybody heard that phrase? Or am I the only one? I see it on social media. My wife has a t-shirt. It's one of my favorite of her t-shirts because it just says, grow through what you go through. And it popped into my mind and I was thinking about that. I'm like, you know, but you, you, you have to work through what you went through in order to grow through what you go through. And Joseph was able to grow through the things as he went through them, because he worked through what he went through. He processed that grief. And we are the same. We have to work through what we went through in order to grow through what we go through. Now, the third thing that we see from Joseph, the third lesson that we can learn is that Joseph rewrote his life script according to Scripture. I love this. I love this phrasing, that he rewrote his life script according to Scripture. Do you realize that most of us go through life with sort of a narrative about ourselves, a life script? Some of that might have been handed to us or indoctrinated into us by our families of origin or by other people who either spoke life into certain areas of us or spoke against certain things in us. 
And we have this life script. And Joseph's life script could have been over and over and over in my life. I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Bad things happened to me. People who were more powerful than me did the wrong thing, and I suffered, and I'm bitter because of it, and I'm right to be bitter. That could have been his life script. And I find it interesting that he rewrote his life script according to Scripture before there was Scripture. But he had such a a connected relationship to God that he was able to rewrite his life script through God's eyes. He reframed his past in a godly perspective, and that godly perspective transformed pain from the past into power for the present and hope for the future, as we've been seeing. And we see this in one of the most famous passages in Genesis, one that finds its way onto many people's walls, many people's journals. It's Genesis chapter 50, verses 19 and 20. And the context here, this is right at the end of Genesis, and now his, Joseph's father has died. And the brothers are worried that Joseph's going to nail him now, that he was just being nice to them out of honor and deference to his dad. And so they make up this story, and they say, hey, you know, Joseph, Jacob really wanted us to tell you to be nice to us. He was worried that you might not be nice to us after he died. And it's a lie. And Joseph doesn't even engage that. He says in verse 19 to them, he says, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You see, he didn't put himself in the place of God. Instead, he learned to see things through God's eyes. He even learned to see his brothers through God's eyes. Those that had hurt him the worst, those who had hurt him the most deeply, he learned to see them through God's eyes. He chose to have compassion on them. He chose to forgive them and be reconciled to them. And it reminded me of Psalm 105. And and Psalm 105 is an area you might want to spend some time. I remember when I was in meeting with a Christian counselor, she directed me to Psalm 105. And Psalm 105 is a beautiful psalm that uh, goes through the events of Israel's history and inserts God and God's hand and God's provision and God's protection and God's sovereignty into those key events. And my counselor encouraged me to write my own version of Psalm 105. In different seasons of my life, this happened, this happened, this happened. The good, the bad, the ugly, and God was with me, and I learned this. And then you go on to the next season of life. This and this and this happened. Maybe the seasons you're up on the mountaintop. Maybe the seasons you're down in the valley. But you could read Psalm 105, and you could use that as a template to write your own Psalm 105. And in so doing, you might even sort of start to rewrite your life script according to Scripture. And that transitions us to the final lesson that we can see from Joseph. Not only did he have a profound sense of the bigness of God, not only did he admit the sadness and losses of his family, and not only did he rewrite his life script according to Scripture, he partnered with God to be a blessing. This is the height of choosing better over bitter. In verse 21, right after he tells them, don't be afraid, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Then he says in verse 21, So then, don't be afraid. He tells them again, I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them, and he spoke kindly to them. So he chooses to partner with God. He chooses to bless those who cursed him. Does that sound like anybody we know? Anything he said for us to do to to bless and to not curse? 
to pray for those who have persecuted us? You see, Joseph shows us this beautiful picture of Christ in the gospel because he chooses to partner with God to be a blessing, even with those who were most abusive to him, those who betrayed him and treated him harshly. And it underscores our bottom line that a godly perspective transforms pain from the past into power for the present and hope for the future. Now, if you remember back to the beginning of the message, there was that big bag of rocks, and I was able to take those rocks and place them on the altar, those rocks representing hurts from the past, bad habits that we developed just to cope with how hard life was or things that happened to us. And you may have noticed when you came in that there were rocks on the seats throughout the sanctuary. We put them right between the seats because we didn't want them to accidentally sit down on one. But those rocks are there. And I want to encourage you to do one of two things with those rocks. The first thing that you could do is you could pick that rock up and you could pray and ask God to show you what that rock represents in your life, what hurt he wants you to let go of today. And then you could get up out of your seat and you could come down and you could place it on the altar. And you could pick up one of these little bookmarks just as a reminder that you could take with you. It has our closing prayer for today. The other thing you could do with that rock is you could take it home. If you're not quite ready to let it go or if you know you need some help in letting it go and it can be a reminder to you to engage in that process, to find community, to find a trusted friend that you can open up and share with and they can help you find the godly perspective or to see a counselor or to be a part of a group that's going through this or to form a group that would go through this and, and to find healing and to find strength in that area. And so those are your two options. You might choose a third option to bring one down and take one with you, whatever you choose to do. This is your time to respond to God. We've got a little extra time. I intentionally finished a little early so that we would have time during this next song and if we need to go beyond it. Now, if you come to these center altars and you want to spend a minute, you can feel free to spend a minute. You can go anywhere along the steps here. Anything on the steps or those altars, we'll take that as an indication that you would like to pray alone and that you're just fine praying alone, doing business with God. If you would really like somebody to put a hand on your shoulder and just pray over you in that moment as you set something down, if you don't want to be alone in that moment, then go to the far side on either side. And somebody will meet you and just put a hand on your shoulder to let you know you're not alone in that moment and to say a prayer over you. But however you choose to respond, these next moments are your opportunity to respond in faith. Will you pray with me? Lord, we believe that you are a God with great purposes. You placed each of us in a particular family, in a particular place, and in a particular time in history. We don't see what you see, but we ask you to show us, Lord, the revelation and the purposes you have for us in your decisions. We do not want to betray or be ungrateful for what was given to us. Yet at the same time, please help each of us to discern what we need to let go of from our pasts and what our essential discipleship issues are in the present that must be addressed. Grant us courage and grant us wisdom 
to learn from the past but not be crippled by it. And may we, like Joseph, be a blessing to our earthly families, our spiritual families, and to the world at large. Amen.